This episode contains descriptions and audio footage of natural disaster events that may be disturbing for some listeners. Please listen with care. Hey, how's it going? It's a warm mid-morning in late September. My partner and I are hiking in the forest of Nisingmark State Park. We're looking for a sign. Coming up on a sign. I don't think it is the sign. Let's see. Yep, there's the warning to not get eaten by mountain lions. And Aptos Creek Trail. Earthquake epicenter, 0.6 miles. My name is Daniel Story. I moved to Santa Cruz just last year to take a position at UCSC. My training is in history. I have a PhD from Indiana University. Here I work as a digital scholarship librarian. If you wonder what that means, well, producing and helping others produce podcasts like this one gives you at least a partial picture of what I get to do. So I wasn't around for the Loma Prieta earthquake, but I was alive. Back in 1989, I was a second grader, living in a small town in Indiana called Fairmount, which happens also to be the hometown of James Dean. I remember seeing the earthquake covered on the nightly news, and I also have this distinct memory of my second grade teacher, Mrs. Pettit, bringing one of those portable TVs into the classroom, one of those sets that was longer than it was wide. She set it on her desk so that she could follow the news updates. She told us she had a cousin in San Francisco, hadn't been able to get a hold of them yet. When I moved here with my family last summer, I didn't realize that when we arrived in Santa Cruz, it would be just a few months out of the 30th anniversary of the earthquake. One of my first project assignments at the library was to work on a commemorative digital exhibit. That was the first time I actually heard the name Loma Prieta. I'd grown up thinking of the earthquake, probably like many people, as the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. So yeah, I'm a newbie to all this, but I'm not new to studying history or to thinking about the complexities of public memory. And that's where a big part of my interest in the earthquake lies. How does an event like this affect a community like Santa Cruz County? Not just physically in the moment, but in less tangible ways over the longer haul. Memory is a powerful but slippery thing. Whether you're talking about individual memory or the collective memory of a community, It turns out, the exact location of an earthquake's epicenter is similarly elusive. So an earthquake, a word we use a lot, is basically some ground motion, usually displacement along a fault. So we have a lot of plates around the Earth's surface that are separated by faults, and those plates are moving in many cases opposite directions and when 
finally, the, the friction between those plates, which holds them together, finally the motion or the strain exceeds the strength of those materials and they break or fracture or rupture. When that happens, there's movement and the rocks sort of reverberate and we have seismic waves moving out in uh, all directions. But it's those waves that actually generate what we feel at the surface as an earthquake. It's sort of the shaking or the shuddering or the displacement. That's Gary Griggs, distinguished professor of earth sciences at UC Santa Cruz. I was hoping you could shed some light on the earthquake from a scientific perspective, and in particular, what goes into figuring out where the epicenter of an earthquake actually is. After the earthquake, what seismologists do is try to locate sort of the epicenter. And actually the epicenter is really the point on the surface of the earth above where the first rupture originally occurred. It didn't occur at the surface, but it was eight miles down. And how do we know where that is? Well, when an earthquake occurs, these different types of waves that move at different speeds propagate out from the earthquake. The fastest are called P waves, primary waves, and those are sort of a push-pull wave, like a train starting up and pulling cars. Slower are S waves, or secondary waves, and that's more like an ocean wave. And because those move at different speeds, the further you are away from that location, the greater the time gap you'll see in the seismograph. And you can see a seismograph. Here comes the P wave, and it slows down, then here comes the S wave. Sort of like somebody starting out in a car and somebody starting out on a bicycle. <laughs> at time zero, they're both the same place, but one's going 60 miles an hour, one's going six. The longer the time goes by, the further they go, the farther they are apart. So what they do with these two wave arrivals is say, okay, they're you know, 30 seconds apart. <laughs> and now the challenges come in. If we knew exactly how fast the waves were traveling through the rock, we could say, okay, it's moving at two kilometers per second, it's 30 seconds, it means it's, you know, whatever, 60 miles away or 60 kilometers. The problem is different rocks transmit those waves at different speeds, and we don't know exactly what the rocks are between, say, Berkeley and the scene marks. I guess it's sort of like a car and a bike going at the same time. Well, the bike wasn't going the same speed all the time. The guy got tired, and so it was, and the, and the car is going a little faster, slower. So it's like, well, it's about this far apart. So what we do is take this projected distance from, say, Berkeley or San Francisco or Salinas or Monterey, and we draw an arc. So okay, it's about 60 miles from Berkeley, and it's about 30 miles from Monterey. We draw these circles. If they all intersect at exactly the same point, we say, well, here's where it is, but they don't because the rocks aren't all the same. So what they did is put it generally in the forest of Nassim Marks, and somebody went out pounded a stake in that said epicenter. What happened, and this is sort of the interesting sort of social part of it, is people start going over there and hiking to the epicenter. People were going over there in limos and tuxes on the way to dinners and said, well, let's go to the epicenter. And they had to hike in three miles and finally the ranger said, you know, this is kind of awkward and, and uh, it's sort of a guess anyway. Let's just move it to a better location. <laughs> so when we did one of these field trips out there with a, it was with a radio or a TV station, we were, it was raining and drizzling and it was kind of, we had 20 or 30 people and someone said, where's the epicenter? And I, I just took my boot in and the dirt, I just 
made an X and I said, where do you want it to be? So it's this mythical point and we have them after every earthquake, but it's high degree of uncertainty. I mean, it's within probably 10 miles, but not within two feet. Meanwhile, we were actually having our own trouble finding the sign for the epicenter. Yep. Boy, I don't know. This is like from up there. This this what? It isn't. But up there isn't either. No. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's just go until it looks like really. That's weird. Well, maybe this wasn't meant to be. What if we go back out and see if there's any other? And ask those people. Have you guys happened to have been this way to the epicenter sign before? I have. And is this the way to go? I know we go right. Yeah. And it's the it's the first real trail. I think it's got to be this. Yeah, we just went down there, and it kind of it sort of disappears. It disappears into the creek, into the creek bed. Weird. But maybe maybe that's the right way. We just weren't sure. And you just came back out that way. Yeah. Well, we, we turned around and came back because we weren't sure we were on the right right Wait, track. I think it crosses right there. Oh. oh. is that it there? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. That, that does look sense. like a trail. Okay, we'll let you guys get a bit of a head start and then. <laughs> So with help from some anonymous hikers, that's how they wanted to be identified. We were on our way again. Okay, so seems like we're actually on a trail now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So here's the sign. It says epicenter, Loma Prieta earthquake, magnitude 6.9, date October 17, 1989, time 5.04 p.m., longitude 121.88 west, latitude 37.03 north. And that's it. Doesn't necessarily look like an earthquake originated right here. So what what was the sign like when you saw it last? One post. One post, not two, right? <laughs> and, it, and it was tilted. <laughs> and it was tilted and kind of sliding. Right. Down. It looks pretty good now. Yeah. At the epicenter sign, we caught up again with our anonymous hiker friends. It seemed like a good spot to talk earthquake stories. Like, unlike anything ever. Where where were you? I was outside, I was working at a daycare center with, uh, I don't know, like 15 kids, <laughs> under under four. <laughs> um, yeah, and so everything, you know, started shaking and I was like, oh, I know what this is. And then all of a sudden the playground started flooding and then I couldn't figure out what was going on, but it turns out it was the underground pool that was over the fence on the other side of the playground. The water was sloshing up and over, like, into the playground. Right. How did the kids react? Um, they were okay. They, they were, you know, I mean, they they just like dropped to the ground and uh -huh. hung out. And then, like for weeks afterwards, they would play earthquake. 
someone would yell earthquake and they'd start shaking and fall to the ground. Wow. So they were processing it in their own way. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I was playing basketball and the hoop moved from the, where the person was standing guarding the hoop. And uh, I was very confused and I looked over and I saw a building just moving. But yeah. That was east side Santa Cruz activity. The, the carnage was on the west side, mm. or downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll go back this yeah. way. Yeah. I don't want to rush you off if you no, need no to problem. stay longer. We thanks got for talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and also, thanks for leading us here. I don't yeah, know if we would have gotten here without you. We never would have found it. <laughs> that would have been a sad podcast. Yeah. It would have been sad. Add that to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> have a good one. Bye. Okay, gonna get out of here. Hi. Hey there. Back to the fire road. The whole trip to the epicenter sign seemed kind of perfect. Us newcomers struggling to find our way helped out by some long-term Santa Cruz locals who themselves were straining through the haze of their own memories. It's that kind of communal effort, and with the same respect for the slipperiness of memory, that I and my team offer you this podcast. We call it Stories from the Epicenter because it is the stories of the people who were here, in Santa Cruz and in Watsonville. And it's stories, not the story. Out of respect for the different perspectives we covered, and for those voices and angles that we didn't. Over 10 episodes, you'll hear about the Santa Cruz downtown, both pre- and post-earthquake, about the political process of deciding how to rebuild. We'll move over to Watsonville to examine the experience of the Latinx community there, how the earthquake both created new challenges, but also opened opportunities to make at least some progress in the area of affordable housing. We'll take a trip to UCSC for the story of how the campus was affected, and we'll move through a series of episodes that tackle memory more head-on, including two episodes produced by the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History and Santa Cruz Public Libraries about the work their respective institutions did to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the quake. But understanding where this story begins, at least in Santa Cruz, you have to go back back before the earthquake, back to a time when Pacific Avenue was not straight, but serpentine, weaving around a collection of lush trees that hung over sidewalks, and when an eclectic group of Santa Cruzans frequented the music-filled sidewalk cafe of the Cooper House. This is episode one, Pacific Garden Mall. I do normally when we start out these is to ask you to say your name and say in you know a, a short paragraph's worth of words your connection to Santa Cruz which 
might be challenging to condense, but, but go for it. Challenging to condense, yes. My name is Ross Eric Gibson. I'm a historic architectural consultant in the city of Santa Cruz. I was born in Santa Cruz, but I've lived all over Northern California. So when I came back to go to college, I came back as an outsider. And I became very interested in the history of Santa Cruz, mostly because I was writing uh, plays at the time. And uh, I just needed to know what was going on, but uh, there were a number of development issues that came up over the years, like the intent to put uh, 11-story skyscrapers on Lighthouse Field. I needed to know more about the history in order to refute some of the uh, ideas that were going around at the time. So uh, that's how I got into historic preservation and uh, other issues concerning Santa Cruz history. I started by asking Ross about Santa Cruz in the few decades leading up to the earthquake. Well, actually, that's very important to uh, the earthquake because in uh, the 1960s, there were plans that they were going to completely redesign Santa Cruz. They were going to cut freeways through the downtown, have one freeway wipe out one neighborhood on the west side, loop through Beach Hill and wipe out all of the mansions on uh, Beach Hill and connect to Ocean Street so that you could get through Santa Cruz without seeing Santa Cruz and wiping out some of the most beautiful sections of Santa Cruz along the way just so you could visit the boardwalk. Now, I love the boardwalk and I love its history, but I don't think Santa Cruz should be designed totally to serve the boardwalk. The plan in 1960 was to completely demolish all of downtown and replace it with chain stores and uh, cinder block high-rises and a mall on Pacific Avenue to look like a shopping center. So how did Santa Cruz avoid this fate? Well, it was in no small part due to the influence of two newcomers to the town in the early 1960s, Chuck and Esther Abbott. Chuck Abbott and Esther Abbott came to Santa Cruz to retire, and they'd been living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they came here in 1963 because they liked Santa Cruz for its Victorian charm. And so they were shocked when they heard that downtown merchants uh, thought that the historic architecture was what was taking away from the business in the downtown and that they were either whitewashing historic buildings so that the details wouldn't show or they were stripping buildings so that they would look like uh, boxes. We came to this town, uh, we thought it was a beautiful town, the Victorian architecture and everything else, you know, because we had lived 30 years in the desert, but being photographers, we traveled all around the country many times in all seasons for 30 years. So we had seen a lot of, uh, of other places, resort towns. That's Esther in an interview conducted by Nikki Silva just a few months after the 89 earthquake. Chuck Abbott had passed away a decade and a half prior in 1973. When we came to this town, we bought and lived in that house on the corner. I don't know if you noticed it, 504 Lincoln, the corner of Lincoln and Chestnut. And within the first year, they tore down five Victorian buildings uh, between Chestnut Street and Pacific, the mall. And we couldn't believe anybody would do that. So we determined to do something about it. We had 
a lot of experience in Tucson where the year before we got there, around 1932, they tore down a mission, a Spanish mission in the heart of town to make a parking lot. And to, to us, that was simply inconceivable, anybody being stupid enough to do that. Of course, we weren't there then, so we didn't blame ourselves. But uh, if we had been there, I don't know if we could have photographed and spoken and done anything about it. But we made up our mind when we came here that we were going to do something about destroying the architectural heritage. For a long time, we had been, as photographers, conscious of and campaigning for, say, the Redwoods, say, the uh, Green Belt, say this, say that, say the other thing. So when we came here, we decided to save the architectural heritage, too. So Chuck set about doing everything he could to spruce up this downtown uh, before the shopping habit would take everybody out to the new mall on 41st Street. And the answer to that was to spruce up the downtown. And our slogan was, beauty is good business. And because other people had, had spoken and shown pictures and so forth, and how beautiful and save this and save that. But that doesn't mean anything to a businessman who isn't doing very much business. So uh, we attacked it from the other angle. Uh, if you want good business, you better be beautiful. And that certainly is true. Chuck and Esther's motivation for their work in Santa Cruz clearly rose out of years of work and travel as well as local activism in the communities they lived in. But their activism in Santa Cruz was uniquely influenced by a single life-altering tragedy they experienced not long after they moved here. In the morning, uh, Mark uh, was drowned on a Sunday morning. Mark, it was a morning just like this, beautiful morning, February 28th. Mark had said, I'm off to the hooting waves. And I was going to say, well, when are you going to come home? You're going to come home for dinner or not? And then I thought, well, there's no use by asking when he's going to come home because he doesn't know. And, of course, he never came home. And uh, later on that afternoon, about 1 or 2 o'clock, I was out in the garden. My husband came out on the back porch. He said, the sheriff called. He wants to see us. And I thought, what could the sheriff I thought there had been an accident. Mark, something has happened. But still, why didn't he say it on the phone? But uh, he wanted to tell us in person, so he said, your son must be presumed drowned. You, you, you know, you never expect anything like that. And so it, it just changed our viewpoint, our lives changed. We made up our minds then to use the years we had left for something that would outlast us. And that's what we've done to this day. And it's been very rewarding. Chuck always said the last 10 years of his life were the best. After we lost Mark and had, you know, devoted ourselves to activities for other people. Armed with past experience and shaken and inspired by the loss of their son Mark, they set to work with a new resolve. When we moved here, we didn't have any friends. We didn't own any property except the house we lived in. We weren't in business here, being freelance photographers. So we didn't step on anybody's toes, or that is, we didn't care who toes we stepped on. We wanted to improve the town. We were in a very uh, interesting position, not having any ax to grind. Nobody knew us either from Adam, so nobody was either for or against us. So we brought our show to everybody who would look at it. That was every club you could think of. Neighborhood associations, church groups, this and that and everything. Because that's the only way to really do things is, it, you know, a grassroots movement. We started out to improve it just 
a little bit, acceptably, make it acceptable, stop tearing down things. Then as the idea grew and more people were convinced, uh, we had bigger ideas, Pl do planting, uh, refurbish it, put sh shutters and uh, oh, um, benches out in front of the buildings, things like that, and make it, uh, uh, give it an ambiance. So Chuck went down the street uh, on Pacific Avenue from merchant to merchant, selling his idea to turn the downtown into a uh, historic district, and he would uh, create a mall on Pacific Avenue that would uh, be pedestrian-oriented as opposed to automobile-oriented. One of the things that he let them know, you wanted to make it more pedestrian-friendly because right now you have traffic heading straight to the beach, bypassing all of the downtown, and just clogging it up for pedestrians so that it's very difficult to use the downtown. So little by little, he was able to get, uh, I think, 65% of the downtown merchants to agree to his idea. And in 1968, they started the, uh, the renovation. And in 1969, they opened the Pacific Garden Mall as a downtown national historic district. And it was very successful. The old Cooper House, which is now gone, was a Richardsonian Romanesque courthouse, which they had outgrown. And when the uh, old courthouse was abandoned, the town fathers just said, well, what we need is parking, so let's tear it down and tear down the octagon building and put a parking lot there so that people will have some place to, uh, to park their cars. Well, first of all, the uh, California Preservation Society, located in San Francisco, sent a letter to the city council saying, the Octagon Building is one of the most rare types of structure uh, in the state of California, and we don't think that it should be taken down. So they committed themselves to saving it and turning it into a museum. And then uh, in 1972, I think it was, a man who had done a conversion of the old school building in uh, Los Gatos came to Santa Cruz and said that he wanted to do a similar type of uh, renovation of the courthouse as a, uh, a shopping center with unique specialty shops and restaurants and uh, gathering places. And this really became the heart and soul of the downtown. It was the perfect expression of the hippie era with people dressed up in Victorian style and serving kind of as a renaissance center for the downtown. And it had a sidewalk cafe and a, uh, a band usually playing, which was warmth. And it was just the most colorful uh, type of place and it became nationally known. People who only knew two things about the town of Santa Cruz knew the boardwalk and the Cooper House. As the plans, as the mall developed and everything, you know, turned out very well. Uh, at the bottom of Chuck's mind was that this could be done in many of these other towns that we had visited.
and many people, we gave our shows in other towns. Uh, in San Diego, for instance, in any town uh, that wanted to improve itself, they heard about Santa Cruz, sometimes they would send a committee down, and we would uh, show, the, give them a private show, and just show them the show and outline the steps. HUD sent uh, a man out from Washington they had also heard about it. Different people had written. And HUD bought 150 slides that were kind of a compilation of all of our shows. Uh, in this 150 slides were some on sign control, some on civic planting, some on remodeling old, old buildings, and some on malls. And so with all of that in mind, HUD got out this book, and they would give, I don't think there was any charge, they would, any town that could qualify, they made, I don't know how many uh, copies they made, they, but they got out this book and a set of slides, 150 slides, uh, that they would give to a town that would qualify. They got this book out, and Chuck saw it just about two days before he died. In 1989, we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Pacific Garden Mall. So that's what I was doing on the, uh, the day of the earthquake. This was going to be in November, and I needed some graphics for the, uh, the brochures and the poster that I was designing. And so I went to Bookshop Santa Cruz, which at that time was uh, at the head of the mall, and I looked for clip art books or anything that would have the right Victorian-looking graphics that would, uh, would represent what I was doing. And I found a few things, but I needed to go to the other bookstore, which was at the foot of the mall. And on the way, I visited a number of my friends who were merchants uh, in different buildings, and I asked them, uh, uh, can you provide room in your, uh, in your front window displays for something reminiscent of the 20th anniversary of the Pacific Garden Mall? And or what are you going to do for the, uh, the entertainment or for the event? And so I saw many of the merchants, and it was such a beautiful sunny day. You could smell the, uh, the jasmine in the air. And the butterflies had, were in town and were just everywhere. It was, it was the most perfect day as a memory of the last day of the old uh, Pacific Garden Mall. And just before uh, the earthquake, I had gone home and had laid out my uh, mock-ups on the uh, kitchen floor, which had the best lighting. And then the house started shaking. And uh, I thought a, uh, they had just built the sewer outfall uh, offshore from our house. And when they were doing that, they would pound away at the uh, bedrock that our house sits on. And so I yelled out the window, you're hitting our bedrock again, thinking that they'd come back. And then it shifted into a different mode. And I suddenly realized this is not 
pounding. This is the, the an earthquake. And I'd never experienced one as uh, tough as that. We, we used to think they were fun. They would be little shakes. Every now and then you'd get um, uh, maybe a crack in the plaster, but nothing more. And this was terrifying. It felt like it lasted 30 seconds, and that was the official call for quite a number of um, months after the earthquake. But it was actually only 15 seconds. And uh, it was officially listed as a 7.1, and they downgraded that too to maybe a 7 or something, I can't remember. 6.9. 6.9, thank you. They said that if the earthquake had lasted much longer, um, it could have caused much more severe damage because just what it did, I mean, I went out the door after the earthquake looking around to talk to somebody and nobody seemed to know just that it happened. There were people jogging on the bike paths just as uh, casually as they're doing right now. And uh, people, uh, there were surfers out on the bay. My eye doctor was um, actually scuba diving and he emerged from the water at one point and says, Oh, look, I can see one of the cliffs collapsing. You seldom see this happen in actual time. And he didn't know that an earthquake had uh, happened because uh, he had been in the water and you just don't feel it in that condition. So I, I couldn't find anybody who really knew anything except my neighbors told me that um, the Bay Bridge had collapsed. Well, one section of it had fallen, but they didn't know that. And it was the... Uh, not the Golden Gate Bridge, but the, the Bay Bridge that actually happened. But I looked downtown and I saw black smoke rising up. And I thought, oh my God, the downtown's on fire because that's what happened with the San Francisco earthquake. First you had the earthquake and then uh, gas mains uh, caught fire and burned part of the city. But it wasn't fire. It was the black smoke from buildings that had collapsed, unreinforced masonry buildings. There's lots of rubble everywhere. Stories from the Epicenter is a production of the University Library at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in partnership with the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History and Santa Cruz Public Libraries. You can find this and other episodes wherever it is you get your podcasts. Or you can visit library.ucsc.edu forward slash stories from the epicenter. There you'll also find more information about the series and about each episode, and additional resources about the Loma Prieta earthquake 
including photos, videos, and interactive maps. Our series producer is me, Daniel Story, and I produced this episode. Until next time, stay safe. Is there anything left to say? The father of them all. And if that was true, I must be Mother Maul. <laughs> but don't call me Mother Maul. <laughs>